Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Auto Riff. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Clint, and we will be having a one-sided conversation where I talk to you and you listen on a bit of history of Pontiac. I also fill you in on the debacle that has become the Chinese ATV project, filling you in on the goings-ons of the YouTube channel, then taking a look back at the last two weeks in automotive history. So open up the door, sit down, press the engine start button, turn up the radio, and let's get this show started. So I just wanted to start this episode out uh, before we get into the history of Pontiac and kind of talk about the Chinese ATV project where last week or last two weeks ago, whatever it was, I said, it runs, it rides. Guess what? It doesn't anymore. Uh, so I had a little, inc- I don't know, it wasn't an incident, sorry. Uh, I wrote it about a week ago around the yard and then it ran out of gas. So I put gas in it. I wrote it, wrote it for about two more minutes and then I parked it. Now, again, I parked it right after I filled it up with gas to the brim, to the cap, filled it up that much. So I went out to go start it a few days ago and wouldn't start, wouldn't start, wouldn't start. And so until the point that the battery died. So I hooked up the battery charger to it. And luckily I was standing there because my charger started smoking and it was burning the wire. So I had to, I had to, I, you know, Rush took the charger off. It's been smoking, whatever, threw the charger away. And then I looked down. I just happened to see that the fuel filter is in there. It has no fuel in it. I'm like, that's weird. So I take the gas cap off. The thing is bone dry. There's not a drop of gas in this gas tank. Now, remember, four days prior, I had filled it up. So unless somebody snuck into my garage and siphoned only that little four-wheeler... I don't know what happened. I did I did remember walking to the garage a couple times and you could smell a little bit of gas, but again, there's that little orange four-wheeler that we're talking about. There's a little blue one that we're talking about. There's my motorcycle sitting there. So all those three things are sitting in my garage. You're going to smell gas. So anyways, that's where I'm sitting right now. I need to take it back apart, figure out where the fuel leak is, and buy a new battery charger now. So fun stuff. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to talk about, so on the YouTube channel, I did start... A, what I call a $10 diecast challenge and that's based off some other things I saw on YouTube it was a $10 video game challenge from this uh, video series that my brother-in-law got me into uh, where basically you start with $10 and use that to start a collection so through buying new uh, cars selling trading and kind of accumulating a collection while having started from that $10 so the only problem with that, I am going to be doing that. The problem is I decided a terrible time to start that when I'm in Ontario and we are under another lockdown. So I can't go to like a Goodwill or what we have here called a Value Village and uh, find cheap, nice diecast cars. So I have been scouring Facebook Marketplace, but I haven't found anything yet worth getting. So... hopefully the lockdown ends in four and a half weeks or whatever and we can get going again on that uh but otherwise i will try to find new content again it is hard we're in a lockdown i'm not supposed to leave other than to go to work and come home which is pretty much what most of my life is anyways and that's fine uh but i'll try to come up with new content as i can and again i'm still trying to convert the podcast to youtube it's a lot harder than it looks even though i'm just putting pictures on there Uh, So stay tuned, and uh, now we're going to head into the history of Pontiac.
Okay guys and girls, I couldn't wait anymore. Nine episodes in and I'm finally going to talk about my favorite brand of all time, Pontiac. As a child watching Knight Rider and Smoking the Bandit, all I wanted was a Trans Am and honestly, I still do. I have owned a couple Pontiacs in my day, really none of the exciting ones. I had a 2000 Sunfire that I drove until it died. I had a 2001 Grand Prix GT that was lots of fun but suffered from a slipping transmission. And I've had a 1997 Grand Am and a 2005 Pontiac Pursuit, which I don't know if it was called a Pursuit in the States. It was I, that was right when I came to Canada. It was basically a G5, the Cobalt clone. But my favorite of all, I've got to say, I got to drive a 2002 Pontiac Trans Am WS6 convertible, which was the last year of the Trans Am. Uh, was it the best driving car I've ever driven? No, but it was a childhood dream of mine to come true. So, funny story about that Grand Prix that I talked about the slipping transmission. When I went to go trade it in, because the transmission was slipping, and it was going to cost more than the car to fix it, I had a code reader hooked up to it because it was throwing codes left and right. You know, the uh, check engine light and whatnot. And when I pulled up to the dealership, I deleted all the codes so that none of the warning lights would come on. Was that a terrible thing to do? I mean, yeah, probably. But as long as you didn't move the car, the check engine light wouldn't come on. And lucky for me, the salesman just started it and never put it in gear. So now that the Pontiac I know was the one we probably all know, the automaker that basically started the muscle car wars with the GTO, but what I didn't know was pretty much the rest. Alan Simbrush was an engineering consultant in Detroit and had previously been a designer at Cadillac. When he met Edward Murphy in 1906, who was building horse carriages, Brush showed Murphy his design for a two-cylinder car that Cadillac had decided not to build. Murphy liked Brush's idea and decided it should carry the name Oakland, like his horse-drawn buggies were. During 1907, Murphy organized the Oakland Motor Car Company. His lack of sales with the Oakland, using the design that Brush had given him with a two-cylinder engine, convinced him that Cadillac was right in rejecting the design. In 1909, Oakland introduced a line of 40-horsepower four-cylinder cars with sliding gear transmissions. Although this innovation was successful, Edward Murphy didn't see the increased sales due to his sudden death in 1908. Shortly before he died, Murphy had met with another former buggy man named William Durant, the founder of General Motors. Soon after, Oakland had become part of the General Motors empire, and its design would change under its rule. The company produced Oakland's most recognized model in 1924, the True Blue Oakland 6, which came with the new L-head engine, four-wheel brakes, centralized controls, and an automatic spark advance. For those of you who don't know, L-head, or a flathead, refers to the pushrod valve train configuration in which the valves were placed in the engine block beside the pistons. Generally, L-head engines used a small chamber on one side of the cylinder to carry the valves. In 1926, Alfred R. Glancy, Oakland's assistant general manager, introduced the Pontiac, the quality six-cylinder engine cars designed to sell for the price of a four-cylinder. The automobile became an instant success and Pontiac had been born. In 1932, Pontiac's manufacturing was combined with Chevrolet, saving enormous costs for tooling, engineering, and production. It was the prototype for GM and helped Pontiac survive the depression. Just prior to this, uh, Oakland was actually shut down in, I believe, 1931 and was made Pontiac the only junior company to survive its parent company. 
As the depression eased, Pontiac stayed in the price point between Chevrolet and Oldsmobile, introducing its middle-class customers to industry firsts like the column-mounted gearshift and a choice of six and eight-cylinder engines. And it worked well, propelling the Pontiac Silver Streak to fifth place in the sales chart in 1937. Pontiac's post-war years were profitable, but the pricing and styling demarcations that protected Pontiac from cannibalism were increasingly under attack from Chevrolet and Oldsmobile. In 1955, Bunky Knudsen took over as general manager of Pontiac, a job his father had held in the 30s. He brought a youthful energy and performance orientation that began Pontiac's transformation into the excitement division. By 1959, Pontiacs were putting on quite a show on the NASCAR tracks, but performance was just the first step in Pontiac's makeover. For the new 1959 cars, Knudsen came up with a brilliant scheme to widen the tracks of his cars since the whole corporate fleet looked like their new finned bodies were hanging out into thin air over their wheels. The simple fix gave the Pontiacs a distinct stance, an enduring marketing slogan that propelled the wide track division to a fourth place, validating Knudsen's approach. The wider is better approach, as far as I remember, was still going on in the early 2000s in some NASCAR ads, where I recall driver Bobby Labonte repeating the line in some commercials. And then in the 60s came the zenith of Pontiac, turning the Tempest into the GTO, the Trans Am. Those were the years for performance and muscle cars, and the perfect years for Pontiac as the performance division. And as the 70s hit, and then the government regulations, horsepower was lost, eventually the GTO went away. The GTO is obviously a car we'll have to look into one day, but being that this is the history of the company and not a single car, we have to treat it as a byline. The Firebird Trans Am stayed around, always in my opinion a cool looking car, but no longer with the performance. An interesting story was that the Firebird was nearly cancelled and just barely survived. But the, sm the movie Smokey and the Bandit revitalized the sales of that model and actually pushed back the third generation, or the Night Knight Rider generation, back three years. The 80s also brought the Fiero, a two-seater mid-engine sports car that many people laugh at today, but apparently in the second generation of that short-lived car was quite good, and I quite want one. Okay, I just need a bigger garage for an entire Pontiac collection, is that too much to ask? The 90s brought a new generation of Firebird, the final one technically, and more and more rebadging of other GM cars as was status quo. Although in my opinion, the Pontiac bodies were always the best looking ones. I mean, Sunfire vs Cavalier? No contest, the Sunfire was cooler. Trans Am vs Camaro? Trans Am, hands down. And all the way down, Grand Prix, Grand Am, Bonneville, all of them were the cooler looking of the cars with shared platforms. I mean, that's just my opinion, but it's my show and you are listening and can't argue back. See how that works. The 2000s brought the demise of Pontiac. They started the new millennium off with one of the coolest vehicles ever, the Aztec. And near the middle, they brought back the GTO as a rebadged Holden Monaro from Australia, which again, hugely underrated car. My friend worked at a Pontiac dealership around that time that it came out, and as much as I had endeared myself to the people working at that dealership, I never got behind the wheel of one. But I did get to make trips to help pick up other vehicles, and I got to move a Sunfire for them to get washed. Now that I'm thinking about it, I was basically a working volunteer, but I loved it. After the GTO went away came the Pontiac Solstice, which I mean, amazing car, right? The little Miata competitor looked so cool, and finally they brought out the G8 in from Australia as well. Just as things to me seemed to be getting good, in 2008, in the middle of a financial crisis and bankruptcy, GM decided to kill off my childhood and young adulthood and killed off Pontiac in order to shrink to four automakers. And that, my friends, is the life and times of Pontiac, 
What was your favorite Pontiac? Let me know on social media or send an email and I will include it in a future podcast. If I had to name one favorite besides all of them, mine would be that 2002 WS6. I felt like a badass driving that car. And now onto this two weeks in automotive history. And now for this last two weeks in automotive history, we're going to be looking at April 12th through the 25th. So on April 12th, 1954, the Hudson Jet Family Club sedan, Hudson's lowest priced 1954 car, was introduced as a mid-year model. We learned in the last episode that it was last-ditch effort for Hudson to gain market share that failed spectacularly. On April 13th, 1965, the 10 millionth Pontiac was produced, a 1965 gold Catalina. We just looked at Pontiac, obviously, in the last segment. April 14th, 1914, the first U.S. patent for a non-skid tire pattern was issued to Stacy G. Karkoff of the Firestone Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio, meaning that it was the first one to have tread, I would assume. It wasn't a bald, round tire. On April 15th, 1925, the first factory-assembled Ford Model T pickup was introduced. On April 16th, 1908, the first Oakland car was sold to a private owner. As originally conceived and introduced, the first Oakland used a vertical two-cylinder engine that rotated counterclockwise. Oakland, as we just learned, was the parent company originally to Pontiac. And as we also know, the two-cylinder engine uh, was not great. On April 17, 1964, Ford introduced the Ford Mustang on the first day of the New York World's Fair in Flushing, Queens. Good time to mention that Ford Mustang also quoted my tweet on Twitter. Uh, I was pretty excited by that. There was a lot of likes on it and a lot of comments, some positive, some negative, but you know, exposure is exposure. On April 18th, 1934, the Citroen Traction Avant which is French for front-wheel drive, was shown to an astonished public in Paris. It was capable of 62 miles per hour, and it consumed fuel at 28 miles per gallon. I wish my Ram consumed fuel at 28 miles per gallon. I did manage uh, 22, 23 miles per gallon on my last trip, which I thought was not bad. On April 19, 1979, production of the Chevrolet Citation, Chevrolet's first front-wheel drive car, began. The Citation was significantly downsized compared to the Nova it was replacing, and the world lost a cool car in the Nova. On April 20th, 1931, Matilda Dodge Wilson, widow of John Dodge, was named on the board of the Graham Page Motors Corporation. She was the first woman board member of a major car manufacturer. On April 21st, 1967, General Motors celebrated the manufacturing of its 100 millionth American-made car, a Caprice Custom Coupe that Chevrolet made in Janesville, Wisconsin. It took General Motors nearly 50 years to build its first 50 million vehicles and right around 12 years to build its second 50 million. On April 22nd, 1956, Carroll Shelby drove a Ferrari to victory in the 100-mile Del Monte Trophy race held on the 2.1-mile Pebble Beach Public Road Circuit. I don't know how many people actually realize that Shelby was a race car driver first before he was a great car builder. On April 23rd, 1953, the last Allstate automobile was produced. The Allstate was an American automobile offered for sale through the Allstate auto accessory chain of Sears, during the 1952 and 53 model years. Didn't know that. Or if the Allstate guy would have driven the Allstate car. 
On April 24th, 1913, Prince Edward Island, Canada lifted its ban on automobiles. I would love to go to Prince Edward Island one day. It looks gorgeous and the property is still reasonably priced. And finally, on April 25th, 1922, ABC Hardy was elected Vice President of General Motors. I assume DEF must have followed him in that position. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Auto Riff. In two weeks, I'll be doing another manufacturer from the past. Not sure which one yet. I'll surprise myself, I guess. I apologize for my kids in the background of this episode. With the lockdown and schools being closed, there isn't really time to record without them here. I aim to keep this episode on the shorter side. The last one was nearly half an hour, which is fine, except my goal was to make this informative in 15 minutes or so, basically enough time for like a drive to work, and still gives you time to listen to all your other podcasts throughout the week. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at theautoriff at gmail.com or follow me and message me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also leave a review in your podcast listening app. Thank you for those of you that have left me reviews on Apple Podcasts. It is much appreciated. All sources used will be in the description of this episode. And thanks again for listening. Drive safe and have a great week. Nineteen twenty-two. <laughs> Excuse me.